with RDs, we get no training. That's why I think supervision is so important. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Our guest today is Tammy Beasley, and in the beginning, we sound a little kind of crazy over the top, excited about her being with us. She was supposed to be on our pod about a year ago, so, and we were just really glad things just didn't work out for us then, but please check out her bio. She was one of my first supervisors, and she's just amazing. She's teaching us so much in here about what dietitians are taught and what they're not taught. She's one of the authors of the Standards of Practice for Dietitians who work with eating disorders. And some of the things she shares with us is believing in full recovery, having a safe place to land, how we can see all the rough edges of self-growth and they keep popping up. We smooth them out and they come back. So it's being humble. It's listening in. It's asking one more question. It's providing that hope that we so know um, can believe in. And she does talk a little bit about some stats with vegans in the recovery process from an eating disorder. So sit back and listen and do that with your clients too. Less is more. Sit back and listen and learn that you don't have to have all the answers and that life is just that whole learning process. There's no sponsor for this today, so I'm going to let you know that my supervision groups are wrapping up in June and I have some new ones starting from July to December. Hi, Tammy Beasley. Hi, Beth Harrell. It is (laughs) a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to chat with you, the one and only Tammy Bees. So <laughs> it makes me laugh. It really makes me laugh. But <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, starting off kind of easy here. Mountains okay. or beach? Ooh, mountains. I know that may surprise you because I live in Alabama and everyone assumes that it's the beach because everyone lives for twice a year beach trips but by far mountains. Okay. And then breakfast or dinner? Oh, breakfast. (laughs) Yes. Have a a breakfast meal you prefer? It will vary. Honestly, I've really been loving the fact that my husband is getting into using our new grill and he bought, and for Christmas, he got those little round molds that allow you to fry an egg easy on a grill and anything he makes for me is my favorite breakfast. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and don't yes. think this has been a standard. We've been married 31 years and, and oh, finally it's, it's happening. Awesome. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Audio book or paper book? Oh, paper book. I'm so old school about that. I just, there's something about holding the book and I feel more, much more present and much more able to get lost in the book Mm. on Zoom Mm. nowadays. And I don't have the energy hardly to listen to an entire book audio. You bet. Yeah. So, and, and I order books. I think I order a book every single week. I read them every single week, but we laugh because my husband and I both, I think our house is becoming more of a library. Then, <laughs> so, what human, percentage human are you? Zone. Okay, what percentage are you reading of them? Oh, I, I'm always reading something, mm-hmm. but I have four or five in the queue. For yeah, sure. yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Yeah. So, I'm going to bring you back because this podcast is really for all levels and all disciplines in the field of eating disorders. But to you, you're a registered dietitian. What do you remember about exam day? Was it number two pencil or keyboard? <sighs> 
Oh, definitely number two pencil. I am, and Beth, you and you and I relate to this for sure. I realized that I have been out of, you know, since my internship, dietetic internship, I think 36 years. So, I mean, I of the era that you waited for that RD exam and it was in October and that was it. So you graduate in May and you stress and you study and you think of nothing but that RD exam. And it was multiple number two pencils sharpened. Yes. I totally remember. <laughs> I remember. That. And we all sat in a room, you know, and it was like hours. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I can feel the stress come back. A booklet where you tear open the little sticker and you have your blank piece of paper on the side and you can write certain things. And if you have to get up to sharpen a pencil, then there's protocols. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Abby was telling me that you have to like get your glasses if you wear glasses, you know, you could have cameras in there, our little technology. Oh my goodness. I don't even think I would have even thought about that. That's crazy. They, they check those out. They scan your handprints. It's intense now. Wow. But wow. the anxiety but you is still. the exam now anytime, right? Like it's something you can sign up for? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So just think, Abby, if you had to wait an entire year. I don't know what I, I my anxiety would have. Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, I and that's, I know. That reminds me. And then you could be working. Another guest reminded us of this, that you could be working, but somebody else would have to sign your notes. And that put that that much more pressure on you to to pass so that you could actually sign your own notes or lose your job. I immediately had a position at UAB hospitals. And it's actually, I was just talking about it this morning, honestly, with my father over coffee is the experience I had on the GI medicine floor of UAB hospital. It was truly life-changing. I I was lucky enough to start as a brand new green dietitian with this genteel physician, Dr. Hershowitz, who was the founder of endoscopy. And he would not start rounds without me. And, you know, we're as low on the totem pole, think of 36 years ago, low on the totem pole in the hospital. I'm very grateful for him, but I remember I had to always have my supervisor sign off on the notes, you know, from May to October. And then you're just waiting for that envelope to come in the mail. Oh, that was my memory. I, my yes. stomach was so in knots from the snail mail. So yes. thank you for bringing us back to that because it just shows that we're on this call and everywhere are different level of seasonings and experiences mm-hmm. that bring us to where we are. So how did you decide on nutrition and how did you get into eating disorders? Oh, that is a great question. And I could probably spend quite a time, bit of time talking about it. I'll try to make it short. I come from the Rocket City, which if you know anything about Huntsville, we are the home of the astronauts. We're one of three space centers, space campus here. And think about 36 years ago, my father was really adamant that I go into engineering. So if a woman had the skill set and the grades to go into engineering, women were not doing that. It was like, you have to do that. So really, I started out in college more for my father than mm-hmm. my and started as an engineer. In my heart, I had thought about pediatrician, becoming a, a physician. The engineer thing did not go well. I have a funny story that I, I have to say. I did an internship with NASA. And a fun fact is I actually worked with Jan Davis, who became one of the female astronauts. And we was just a very quiet engineer. And I worked a whole summer with her and I was responsible for the computer data, which meant there was one room iced down to 50 degrees. It was this massive room, the size of my house, but it was one computer for NASA. And I had data cards in an order, put them in a slot back to back to back. And if you, you know, if you dropped one Oh my goodness, the whole thing shuts down. So that's that feels so funny now to say, but but anyway, so I'm sitting there in engineering going, I can't talk to a computer. What am I doing here? Because I really love relationships. So I shifted my major more towards the, the medical side. I say all that to bring up the fact that I actually had 
my own eating disorder journey to go through. And the pressure of performing in a man-oriented education field added to everything else and it imploded. And I tanked. First time my grades tanked, my health tanked, everything tanked, my soul tanked, mm-hmm. my my family. I got literally scared out of it, gratefully, from a physician who I went to because I had not had a period for a year and no one really talked about it. You know, think mm-hmm. about it 36 years ago. It was the mom's fault if that, if it was talked about mm-hmm. and Hilde, Hilde Birch, I believe, mm-hmm. you know. The, the one main book. So this physician was actually very kind. He was out of, out of his comfort zone for sure. He could not find anything wrong. And he literally said, I don't think you're eating enough. Mm. It was a shock to me, but it was such a turning point for me because it's like, I had that moment where I thought nutrition has affected every single thing in my life. It's affected relationships. It's affected my faith. It's affected my brain, my grades, my mental health. Wow. Mm. I think I discovered, I was searching through like, what do I want to do? Because I can't do what I was doing. found a degree in nutrition and it was this beautiful combination of relationship and science. Mm. It, I mean, my soul sang there. And I transferred everything. It was so interesting to have all of your electives be, you know, chemistry, bio, you know, physics and all of these engineering courses. I didn't get any fun electives because in a, to, a, to graduate on time, I really did my senior year, my junior year and my junior year, my senior year. And they really worked with me to do that at Auburn University. And then I went to UAB hospitals. And so I would say that having my own eating disorder definitely opened my eyes. It showed up later and overlapped my first three years of practicing as a dietitian in a clinical hospital setting. I was not in this field. Very grateful for that experience because it's the bottoming out times when you feel like you've lost everything about who you are that really can can become that silver lining, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and some beautiful therapists invested in me. And I can say I stepped into full recovery with just a little bit of confidence and have remained there. I mean, I I know there's, that's a whole conversation. I do believe in full recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, women, all of us are going to struggle with how we feel about our bodies in any one given moment, but never crosses my mind to punish self in any way or to use food and movement as punishment. So mm-hmm. truly full recovery is possible, mm-hmm. but it was, it was laying that groundwork of seeing how I could practice as a dietitian and give grace and hope and compassion to every client, but myself yeah. I had a therapist kind of call me out on a behavior that I can tell now was I was asking for help and so grateful. Yeah. And yeah. so, in that transition, I ended up meeting my husband, who's from right down the road, Fayetteville, Tennessee, but was in Miami, Florida at the time, and married and moved to Miami. And within a year or two, was involved with my first eating disorder client through Dr. Flora Sack. Ovidio Bermudez was at Children's Hospital in Miami at the time. Paula Levine was, you know, one of my therapist colleagues that started referring clients, Dr. Elliot and Roy Ehrlichman, just all of these people who saw in me that, you know, Tammy, we want you to see this client with an eating disorder. And I was like, no, 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 you don't mm-hmm. can't go there. And they're like, no, we've already, we've already referred her. Mm-hmm. And so took that first client, but, but from that moment on, it's like, you knew for me, definitely felt very called to this space. And because I believe in full recovery, I felt like it was a real honor to be able to represent hope for clients. And mm-hmm. it's the hardest thing we can do. I think it's been one of the, definitely the hardest jobs that I could imagine, but so rewarding in that. as Huge. I represent hope. That's a, that's a yeah. nice phrase. Have you worked in both outpatient and we know that you are in a treatment facility now, but have you worked in outpatient in the past? 
Yes, actually, I have. That's probably the bulk of my experience. I would say I always had, when I started seeing clients that had an eating disorder, I was in a hospital setting at Baptist Hospital and I was over the nutrition outpatient program there. So I would say it was really more like a modified IOP in some ways. And within a year or so, we actually opened up an eating disorder only nutrition outpatient practice through the hospital. So I was involved in that way. And then certainly as having children, I would kind of pull back, but I've always had some kind of small private practice. And there were definitely periods of time where it became my full-time, my full-time work as, as a private practice. So I would say 15, at least of my 30 years that have been in this eating disorder treatment space has been almost full-time private practice. When I was in Miami, this is a different time and place. This is prior to HIPAA. And one of my favorite stories to share is that Dr. Bermudez would call me because he would be at Children's Hospital and his his dietitians did not know eating disorders. And he would call me at Baptist Hospital and say, can you come over here and talk to our our dietitians and this client because we're really struggling. And I would leave Baptist Hospital. I would park in Miami Children's Hospital. I would walk right through those doors. I'd go straight up. I'd sit with the dietitians, read the chart with them, talk with the client, kind of mentor them and go back to Baptist Hospital. And now you think about that, that would never happen. So I (laughs) I had inpatient work. I had outpatient work. And then with Paula Levine, she and I created the first IOP for for Renfrew at the time in Miami, Florida. I felt like I had a lot of experience on the two extreme ends, the outpatient end and the high, you know, the, the inpatient hospitalization side. And Alsana has allowed me to kind of fill in the in-between there with residential and partial hospitalization. We meet with a lot or we interview a lot of practitioners who also have had eating disorders in the past. How do you think that helps you connect with the patients you work with? I personally think it has been, uh, that's a a question that has some frame around. I think you have to be very aware and self-aware and in a place that you feel ready and confident for that vulnerability. And saying that, I feel like it has been a great benefit in the work I've done. I haven't shared with all clients and I don't necessarily share initially. I will share often in like a large group, say presentation, just to put a frame again around, I have personal and professional experience in this field and I represent and believe in full recovery. So that's the main thing I want to get across. We we have young dietitians over the years that I would probably give advice to to say, it's not time for you to share your story because you can tell that there's still some more work to do around the thought process around that. Mm-hmm. That answers your question. So I'm very confident in it. And I have therapist colleagues who are very confident in belief that you should not disclose. So right. it's an interesting line that we walk. You know, again, I stand very confident and don't regret any disclosure I've done early, early on. Did I disclose too much, too fast? Absolutely. Is that one of the many, many lessons learned? Absolutely. And it came back to, to, to hurt me and did not end up being productive for the client. Again, think about with RDs, we get no training. That's why I think supervision is so important. And supervision, not only with a senior dietitian, but supervision with a therapist, I had the gift of having, you know, Paula, Roy, therapist here in Huntsville, Alabama, that have just poured into me that you can collaborate and you learn so much. So I, I kind of learned the hard way, too much disclosure, too fast, 
at a point in my relationship with the client that it was not productive. And this is what is so helpful, Tammy, your vulnerability here. I really, really appreciate because so many of us go through, no matter how long we've been in the field, don't feel confident sometimes. Am I doing the right thing? Did that really hurt or help? And so the question of disclosure is, it's an intentional one. Mm -hmm. And you have that experience that it didn't necessarily help the first few times that you did it. So then you start to ask, you know, is this a safe time or place or would it help? I think the answer that I've been taught is that if you think it will, if, if, if it benefits your client, you have to think about what's yes. going to fall yes. on their ears. Yes. So Abby's original. Are you saying it for yourself? Oh, right. You saying it for your client. Right. And so when Abby asked connection, yeah, mm-hmm. because you don't want to connect over your eating disorder. You do right. like, there's the transference, counter-transference things that you, you don't, your eating disorder is different. Everyone's is different. And so you can't assume that you're going to connect in the same way that they do. It actually can push them away. Exactly. I think the connection for me comes super easily around what the function of the behaviors were for me. And that's the work we do now that the nutrition team that I work with, our, our goal is really to help clients see whatever the behavior is, what's the function? How is it serving you right now? And how is it isolating because that feels safer? Is it a punishment? Is it a reward? You know, how is it, what is it, what function is it serving you? And I think that's where the commonality can come, but the way you do that is is of no consequence really. So I never share details of you know, what my journey specifically was at this point. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the things that I think I'm a two on the Enneagram. If you're familiar with Enneagrams, I love them. They're, they're so informative and so helpful in work and, and personal relationships, in my opinion. But I am a two, like hook, line, and sinker. And if I had known this, when I disclosed with a client too too early. This client, I did not know enough about standing firm in boundaries um, around that. And I misunderstood her immediate connection with me. And, and it it became much more about my journey than her journey. And then that was, you know, that became a very awkward situations. But I remember I knew I had crossed a line and I don't think I've ever shared this publicly before, but this was in early nineties, mid nineties, where I thought I was joining her for a meal experiential. And that sounds fine, right? You join in a meal and you process through that meal. And, you know, it's something we do very intensely. And I think it's super powerful. That meal experiential became her desire for friendship and her desire to show off her culinary expertise, um, her relationship with the waiters, all the things. It, it, It crossed a line. And I was rightfully, I don't know, not reprimanded, but mentored by a therapist who said, cross the line. Mm. How? Because I was only trying to help. And again, it's, you know, it took my desire to be of help, which is a two Enneagram, the helper. Mm. But what I thought was going to be a, a experiential therapeutic experience became it crossed the lines of her wanting to be my friend. Mm. Yeah. Can't be friends. How would you avoid that? No, absolutely. How would you avoid Mm -hmm. that if you were a newer person? What would you need to have in your mind frame to to see that ahead of time? I think think nowadays, I think part of the supervision and the training around young dietitians in this space is around that, is around the importance of professional boundaries and lines and realizing that as a parent, it's easier for me too, because I know as a parent, I'm not my child's friend. They don't need me to be their friend. They need me to be their parent. I can be there. You know, we can have more of that friendship when we're adults, but as a young child, 
they don't need to like me per se, you know, I have to hold that boundary. And so it's, it's definitely easier for me to embrace now, but I think going into it, realizing that this is a professional relationship and there are rules and boundaries around that. Yeah. And we cannot be what they need us to be. Mm-hmm. That is if that bleeds through. Yeah. These are, that's a great example. I appreciate you sharing that. We got to. It's a little embarrassing, but <laughs> it happens, you know? It's true. These are, these are real experiences yeah. and, and we all fumble through them and I have lots of examples yes. too. I don't have a meal experience one like that, uh, but lots and of it happened examples. to be this incredible restaurant in Miami, Florida that was like to die for and you could mm. hardly so mm. it really became so out of control. Oh, yeah, I can <laughs> and I was totally. like, wow, I'm at this restaurant. And I mean, and she, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, you have an, you have another example too. I want to get into your passions. Like you've, it's kind they've kind of shifted over time, but I know supervision is, is one of them and you've talked mm-hmm. about it and you were an author on the SOPs, the standards of practice for the Academy of Nutrition. So you looked into all of those areas and like what makes a dietitian proficient versus expert. Right. So any of those experiences that you can pull for dietitians listening today on what are some things that you um, want to share with us to help us feel confident? Oh, goodness. That's a big question, Beth. It's a huge question. <laughs> and then I do want to get into your passions. Too. Yes, I think. A couple of things, and I say this with tremendous compassion, is realizing that our training does not, our training as dietitians does not prepare us to work with eating disorder clients. And no shame around that. It just is. We hope that changes. So what, where I have seen that you know can can grieve my heart is when I see a dietitian who will move into this space very quickly, more in a private practice arena without having worked within a team to understand that collaboration, to understand where your lanes are side by side, you know, cross, but how you each support each other in very unique ways. There, dietitian, and I think. Our job is not to fix, and that's not the right way to say it. We are not there to give all the answers. And I think we're trained to think that way. Even if we have motivational interviewing as part of our training now, which I know we do, we need so much more, but realizing that our role really, my passion right now, a couple of phrases, I really want any client that is in my presence, in the presence of our nutrition team to feel seen and heard. And so seen and heard, that's your goal, seen and heard. And then my biggest platform now, I think, is do no shame. Mm. We hear do no harm with, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, but no shame. And I want... I think for young dietitians, remembering that it's not ours to give the answers, we're not going to necessarily even have answers that for the, you know, to explore with the client, to give them a safe space that they can explore, that the goal is a renewed relationship that has no shame or judgment around nourishing the body, mind, and soul. I think we're trained to come in with answers and we come in more motivated than our clients. Well, I think another, this is not necessarily in any order, but ask the client their expectations. What what do they want? And it's simple, but I wasn't trained to do that necessarily. Of course, it's been decades, but realizing that, I could have an amazing agenda for my client and know exactly where they need to go. And I may be correct. I mean, it's not like I'm not correct. I may see all the ways and areas that this client could 
could work and recover and strengthen that recovery. But I can't go that journey alone. It, you know, the, the client really has to lead that journey. As you become more competent, you are able to guide the client to see the options of the journey. But I think if that's any kind of advice, I think one, I would always ask for help, you know, always ask for help. If you're new in this field, get a a supervisor, get a team together that you can process what's happened because you won't know what's happened. I often, in some of my supervision that I've had in the past with some beautiful practicing dietitians out there, I remember one sweetheart called me and she was just in tears. Like I, my client is so like, she's like, I'm so stuck. I, it feels like this. It feels terrible. It feels, and she named all these emotions around feeling so stuck with her client. The reality was, is the client felt really stuck. And there was a moment where I said, have you shared with the client these stuck feelings that you're feeling? And you wonder if the client's feeling the same thing, because what you're feeling is mirroring off your clients, mirroring that off of you. So all of those feelings you have and how bad it feels and how desperate you feel and how loss of hope, that's exactly what your client's feeling right now. Can it, does it help to know those feelings and then connect with the client there? And then it's like a whole new starting place. Does that make sense? Am I making sense through that? Where you just are able to, in the in the supervision piece, able to help this younger dietitian see that she didn't see it happening. The transference and the counter-transference, it was happening right there and it had really got them both stuck. So helping see that you can actually learn from how you're feeling, how your client's feeling. If you stop and recognize that all this stuff that I walk out of the room feeling actually is very informative and gives me a lot of insight into what my client is probably feeling too and what's going on. I think that went off on a tangent a little bit, but (laughs) I think that example perfectly highlights like sometimes the, I don't want to say issues, but the challenges with being a dietetic student and then getting into real world practice. I remember countless times my professors telling me you're going to start practicing and you're going to want to just tell them everything, you know, and like you said, give them this perfectly designed plan, but it doesn't work that way. And we don't learn about counter-transference and transference and, you know, talk to them about how you're feeling. It makes me think of Molly Kellogg too. Like, you know, all yes. the all things there. So really, absolutely, everything you're saying makes sense and really does like highlight the struggles. I think one of my favorite things now that I love to train, pass on is the role we can have. I call it hope chart or hope journal, but I'm hearing so much now about clients who lack motivation. There's, you know, they're just not motivated. I'm working harder. I want it more than they want it. They're not motivated. And we may not work harder than our clients, but we may want it more than our clients. And that's really hard to to sit with. But that lack of motivation, which can actually be very frustrating and can easily make almost feelings of anger, you know, like, you know, I'm banging my head on the wall and and they don't care. How I I it may not always align with this, but how I see that is it's not that they're lacking motivation is that they've lost hope they can change. And if we can, if we can rewrite that as they don't care, they're not motivated, they're not doing the work. If we can shift that and say, what if they don't believe it's even worth the effort because there's no hope left that they can change. Mm. That is why they, they come in so lacking motivation and are almost like, like, resistant or or apathetic. And seeing it that way, I think one of the roles that we have as eating disorder dietitians that I really love and enjoy is, and again, I call it hope chart or hope journal, but helping clients see the tiniest of change that they have made that they missed. And it's like, did you hear yourself today? You said, should only five times today. Do you know when I met you two months ago, 
you said it 25 times. Yes. Um, yeah. You know? you, like you said earlier, I can give grace, hope, and compassion to everyone else yes. except myself. And so you're, exactly. you're allowing them to see that by reflecting it back. They're not going to notice that, but, but you're helping them be seen and heard yes. and yes. to do no shame. Because if you miss that, you're also telling, teaching them there is no hope if you. Exactly. Cause yeah. if there's always a goal that they've never met and never met, mm-hmm. it's different from just positive affirmation. It's really like saying, helping them begin seeing it differently. Like they sit at the meal table, say in treatment mm-hmm. and they're engaged for the first five minutes, but they used to like be shut down from after the first minute. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. It's not just listing. Oh, eat 25 more percent that's Mm. good but it's seeing the whole meal experience the whole relationship with food and relationship with body and how they are shifting in their thoughts their behaviors their demeanor their emotions around that and think about how powerful that list of you know like hope like that change that change that change that change and then you have this ongoing page after page of the smallest of small change but then it's a reminder that wait a minute i can change i didn't even know i did it and i did it so i feel like it can bring back that can sometimes be the un, the 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 unsticker or the d sticker or whatever you want to call it <laughs> the 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 stuck place where there's just that little bit of hope again, you know, mm-hmm. that they're not the same person. And Beth, you know, the, the, is it rife and rife or reef and yeah. yeah. Nutrition therapy for eating, eating disorders. disorders. Like 1993. Yeah. It was our Bible back mm-hmm. then, Abby, the recovery graph. If you remember that recovery graph, it, it, I use it all the time. I still do too. Yes. And there's so much hope in that graph because as soon as the behaviors come back full force, the client thinks they've gone all the way back to where they started. And what's powerful about that graph is it doesn't let you forget that, that, that line on the bottom that's closer to recovery. So, you know, the, the path is rough and ragged and it's not smooth, but the behaviors may may be the same behaviors as you had in the beginning, but you are further along. You can't negate all the work you've done. It doesn't erase. You are a different person experiencing those same behaviors at that same intensity than you were when you did last time. So being that new person, don't forget it. You, know, mm-hmm. you are not the same person. This is not a relapse that takes you back to where you were. This actually all new. I use it all the time. Yeah. And have, I have clients point out where they think they are. And, and so even if they come back and say uh, they're, they just feel like they're back at square one, I'll pull it out and I'll help remind them. Yes. I I will pull out a different one sometimes and have them graph where they are. And then we compare, you know, but yes, that's a, that's a very powerful tool that I think never loses. It's, you know, light bulb moment for clients. Yeah. Maybe Beth, we can even like attach a link to that in the show notes, because I remember in supervision with you, you showed me the graph and I use it all the time, you know, just highlighting, showing to the client, your progress is not linear. Your recovery is not going to be linear. You're going to have these ups and downs. I think it makes a huge difference. Yes. It helps when you said hope is your, you know, is one of your big messages that that chart itself brings back hope. Yes, it does. I love it. I love that Beth has passed it on and you're doing it and (laughs) we continue to pass it on. Yes. Great tool. Yeah. And that, you know, this, that being said, Tammy was one of my supervisors. So I had a person I was working with in the early nineties and because of my shift in my work areas, I was no longer able to work with that person. I was really sad. And then I found Tammy and it just validated for me that even though she was halfway across the country and that I was being taught in similar ways and, and these experienced clinicians were folks who had seen this work 
and they were saying similar things. And so I really do encourage people to have a variety of supervision mm-hmm. supervisors right? because of that. You, you just, it's a richness that you can't get otherwise. I agree. I think even hearing people phrase things differently, like sometimes one phrase will hit you a little bit differently than something else, but we've totally come full circle here with Tammy, you being best supervisor and now Beth, you're fine. So sweet. That's pretty special. I think we should take a photograph. We will. (laughs) The screen or something or the microphone or something. it's a moment. Yes. And Beth's legacy lives on and on and on through your work with Iodet Beth. So powerful and it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Certification was something that I didn't know about until I worked at the children's hospital and they said, we want you to be certified in your area of specialty. I said, there isn't a certification in eating disorders and did some research and found out there was, and that Tammy was the director at the time. And she, she took that program. I don't remember, Tammy, how many dietitians it started with when you started, but I remember doing the calculation as you were stepping out and I was stepping in and it was impressive. So I know it was under, I want to say it was less than five. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but right. It, it got stagnant at around 10 to 12, maybe. And mm-hmm. now past that. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. just, I think the big, you know, definitely the big turnaround was the Academy mm-hmm. recognizing the CRD as similar to the diabetes educator certification. Mm-hmm. I did notice that in today's dietitian, there was an article about ways you can become more advanced and certified in specializations. Mm-hmm. And not listed in there. And I was like, well, that is an unfortunate miss. Mm. I have seen us listed in actually journals. There was an IGED journal that lists mm. Good. an option besides the standards of practice. So mm. I, I do think that it definitely has changed in terms of clients' comfort and confidence mm-hmm. in us as yeah. clinicians and if anything, just showing that it matters to me that I stay, you know, informed, that I stay educated. This still changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. You know, you talk about veganism and I'm actually refreshing that because I feel like the exciting part about that is when we open our doors to treating clients who are vegan that had eating disorders for residential level of care. I really don't think there was another program doing it at the residential level in a way that was more than just will accommodate, but that was actually intentionally being done. The same survey of the IFED listserv a year later showed that 98% both years are seeing clients that are vegan in outpatient practice. So we're, we're seeing the clients, but what happened was from a year later of more exposure around that clients who are vegan, if they won't go to treatment, unless there's a vegan meal plan, we lose an opportunity to get them into treatment to discover if the motivation is ethically based or, or diet based, you know, we, we won't know unless they're in treatment. So we have to get them in there and they won't come if they can't eat a, a vegan meal plan. But the exciting thing is, is in a year, a survey of the IFED group, it showed that dietitians in the outpatient space had changed their mind. Only only 25% thought you could recover if you actually maintain veganism and that you could recover. And there was like more like 52% in a year had moved in their direction that, you know what, maybe there is more to look at here. But I think just looking at the way we saw vegetarianism 25 years ago, it was all an eating disorder. Don't you remember that? Mm-hmm. I t- I do. And I'm thinking, I'm comparing this with exercise and mm-hmm. how we've moved past and moved through, not past. And moved through, moved through, right. Moved through the sticky part mm-hmm. of like, well, you just can't do it anymore. Um, right. To actually honoring being seen and being heard. There's yes. a reason for the yes. eating disorder. There's a reason for the food choices. There's a reason. And you can be fully nutritionally validated and fuel your body as a vegan. 
So if you can, yes, it is hard. I'm not saying it isn't right, but you can, it's not an automatic, like we can't work with you. Exactly. I think that's our own work to do too. And, you know, we, we discovered those all the time. I discovered it all the time. You know, I'm so weight inclusive, health at every size and literally eight months ago realized that staff was bringing in diet sodas and I missed it. I didn't even see it, you know, and a client called me out on that. I was in St. Louis and like, you've got to meet with this client. She is livid. And I sat down with her and she said, you have a double standard. And I said, tell me more. Tell me, what are you talking about? I want to hear. She said, you're, you know, anti-diet culture and weight inclusive. And yet my therapist and my, you know, my direct care brings their diet soda with them everywhere. I literally just sat there silent going, wow, you're right. So, you know, we, we immediately shifted then it's like, is there room to grow at all times? Can someone be completely anti-diet and have missed that one? I'm not on site to see it all the time, but that doesn't matter. You know, where we basically said, Hey, we're going to align with this, the message we're giving our clients. We want you to do your own work. You don't have to fess up. I, whatever you do outside of programming, I want you to do your own work, but that's you. But in programming, we honor our clients. We can't, we can't have two messages here. Yeah. That was one of those growth areas. You're like, ouch, but I was able to tell this client, you know, you've made us better. Thank you. You're very angry and I hear you and I get it. And thank you because I'm going to do something about that today. And we did. So growth, self-growth, all those rough edges, they keep popping up. Once we, once we smooth one out, we'll get another one. <laughs> so it's constant work. That's good to know though. Cause I would have never thought of that. <laughs> never crossed my mind. Yeah. You know, going to be inclusive. You know, I want to be inclusive. I'm not going to tell you what to eat and what not to eat. You know, it didn't cross my mind. There was a different this, but this mattered in treatment space. And I have to, I have to put diet soda and like Apple watches or other Fitbit or things into the same thing because they can be used in a way that is far from disordered. Absolutely. However, Absolutely. we can they can be triggering and and our goal as you had mentioned is to create that safe space. So if we are showing yeah. up with I'm you know things that are triggering our we have to let them be seen and heard. Yes. And if it matters enough and it makes sense to shift what we do. Right. On the other hand, you know, we've had clients who are vegan and Honestly, the ones that probably are the most vocal and struggle and and push back are the ones that probably are more enmeshed in the eating disorder. But we've had clients bring a product and they will have done research and say this product is not vegan. And we will hold the line and say, you know, we can honor all known ingredients, but we are we are not responsible for artificial flavorings, natural flavorings. And, you know, we're, we're an entity, you know, we can't, we don't have the labor and space and time to do that. So we draw the line in places that we need to draw the line. But with this situation, it was one of those things that, you know, you're right in this space, it is, it is distracting. It is hurting your recovery. And like Beth said, it's the exercise piece. It really does show that we're picking up on these different things and making progress. And honestly feel for a newer dietitian in the field of eating disorders, it feels like a good time to be entering with all of the haze, with what we're learning about exercise Mm -hmm. and being vegetarian or vegan. It's a good spot to be in for sure. So I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited for all the, the young dietitians coming in. I love this work as much as I've ever loved it. It, it, I don't lose the love by, I mean, do I have bad days? Oh yeah. But I'm so glad that I'm a dietitian treating eating disorders. And I'm so excited for those entering this field because I do think that it's the best time ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, then that brings me to my wrap up question for okay. you. 
So entering, taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Hmm. It's kind of a toughie. That is a tough question. I'm going to certainly go to the thought of clients need to be seen and heard more than hear my words. You know, I think of that, but what did I wish I knew? Why am I wanting to say that less is more? Mm. (laughs) I really am wanting to say that. I wish I knew that the compassionate presence and having someone that they feel safe with, that they can explore beliefs around food and body without judgment Mm -hmm. is the greater gift. And sometimes saying less does more. Being again, being that safe space with answers, but more of a presence. And that goes back to what I starred something, but I didn't say it as I'm taking notes. We don't have to have all the answers. Yeah. If if we are constantly talking, that's too much. So less is to be able to sit back and listen Mm -hmm. and not feel like we have to have all the answers because that can actually work against us. Exactly. And ask one more question. Ah. Ask more questions. Just Mm -hmm. one more. One more question. Um, I wish I had known because again, I came out with this. I'm going to help everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And I wish I had asked more questions, which is part of the listening. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we are so glad that you joined us. Thank you for teaching us again, over and over and over again. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate, Beth, you know how much I love you. And Abby, sky's the limit. So excited for you. And anyone out there, thank you for taking time to do so. It's really been fun for me. Very honoring. Thank you. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethherald.com slash professionals.